Jeremiah chapter 16, we'll begin reading in verse 11, just to get a little uh, running start into our passage this morning, which really starts in verse 14. Jeremiah chapter 16, beginning verse 11, we'll read all the way through chapter 17, verse 4. Okay, so we're going to read into chapter 17 um, this morning. Jeremiah 16, if you found it there, follow along with me in your own Bibles as I read. Jeremiah 16, beginning verse 11. God's word declares, then you shall say to them, because your fathers have forsaken me, says the Lord, they have walked after other gods and have served them and worshipped them and have forsaken them and not kept my law. And you have done worse than your fathers. For behold, each one follows the dictates of his own evil heart, so that no one listens to me. Therefore I will cast you out of this land into a land that you do not know, neither you nor your fathers, and there you shall serve other gods day and night, where I will not show you favor. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that it shall no more be said the Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of Egypt. But... The Lord lives who brought up the children of Israel from the land of the north and from all the lands where he had driven them. For I will bring them back into their land which I gave to their fathers. Behold, I will send for many fishermen, says the Lord, and they shall fish them. And afterward I will send for many hunters, and they shall hunt them from every mountain and every hill and out of the holes of the rocks. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from me. From my face, nor is their iniquity hidden from my eyes. And first, I will repay double for their iniquity and their sin, because they have defiled my land. They have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable and abominable idols. O Lord, my strength and my fortress, my refuge in the day of affliction, the Gentiles shall come to you from the ends of the earth and say, Surely our fathers have inherited lies, worthlessness, And unprofitable things. Will a man make gods for himself which are not gods? Therefore, behold, I will this once cause them to know. I will cause them to know my hand and my might. And they shall know that my name is the Lord. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron. With the point of a diamond it is engraved on the tablet of their heart. Now the horns of your altars, while their children remember their altars and their wooden images by the green trees on the high hills. O my mountain in the field, I will give as plunder your wealth, all your treasures, and your high places of sin within all your borders. And you, even yourself, shall let go of your heritage which I gave you, and I will cause you to serve your enemies in the land which you do not know. For you have kindled a fire in my anger which shall burn forever. Well, this morning we are going to come into a, uh, from our perspective, a very important passage that should bring some rejoicing to our hearts because within this passage is where the church is in the plan of God. And we have an opportunity to see how Israel's sin and rebellion opened the door 
of salvation, really, to the Gentiles. We're going to see how that happened, not just in the church age, but even back in the times of Nebuchadnezzar and some of his officials in Babylon. How the working of God in judging his people opened the door of faith to those that we would might consider to be the enemies of God's people. In fact, the very ones God uses to judge Israel. And we're going to see that played out, but we're also going to see why that is necessary. And that's going to take us back to one of the major themes of Jeremiah. And we will never vary very far away from this major theme. We have seen it extensively already, and that is how tenacious is sin in the hearts of men. How deep does our sin reside in us? And, of course, one of the most famous passages, and as far as memorizing as a young person um, in church, is Jeremiah 17, 9, which is right, we are right on the cusp of getting it. We were, are going to jump into that. Uh, that declares that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? And so we're going to get to that passage as well. I, I didn't want to read it this morning because the intermediate passages are going to be more in line with next week's message. And so we are going to jump to verse 9, but we're going to start and end in that condition of men's hearts and that brings about the wrath of God, not just for a season, um, but we're going to see how this sin condition is an eternal state of wrath for God. And that's going to hopefully resolve some things in our understanding of God's justice and his the necessity that he has to punish sin. And we're going to uh, begin, as I shared earlier in our Bible reading, with something from the last couple of weeks, just to get us a good running start. But before we do, let's go, Lord, in prayer. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you for your word. And as we look into it, we pray your, your spirit might guide us and direct us. We thank you uh, for its power and its authority. And whether we receive it today or not, one day we will be judged according to it. And so, Lord, give us a heart and a mind that is ready to receive that, that we might uh, be wise in preparing ourselves for that judgment day by turning from our sin to you, that you might find our hearts tender and not chiseled out of stone this morning but that we might be receptive to your truth. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Well, we have had a couple of weeks of a lot of illness and a lot of people missing, and they were very important to the development of to this week's message and next week's. And so I want to take a couple of minutes, and it really it deserves a lot more than that, to back ourselves up and look into two facets of Israel's condition uh, of why God is going to just press them with what seems to be almost uh, oh, too much judgment. But we're going to hopefully understand that. It begins really two weeks ago when we were back in chapter 14 and 15, and we see Israel making these faux confessionals. We talked about that extensively, and why in the midst of a confession does God say, I don't accept you? Well, because their heart wasn't right in the confessional. They were saying the right words, kind of, 
Um, although in the midst of their confessional, they ended up making it God's fault. Um, but they were saying kind of the right words. We're terrible sinners. We have done horrible things. And you might say, that's just exactly what pastor says we need to get people to admit. And they were willing to do the A of the ABCs of Christianity. Remember, admit, believe, confess. Um, so they're admitting they're sinners. And so they've got a great start. We're on the road to salvation. And, and then we read the next verse that says, God says, I don't accept you. I don't accept that confessional because there's no repentance behind it. There is a declaration that you're a sinner, but no declaration of turning from that sin to being obedient to me, but rather you're simply coming to me and saying, okay, we confessed our sin, now it's for you not to ever judge us because we admit we're a sinner. Well, admitting you're a sinner isn't the same as repentance. It's not the same as trusting in Christ. It's not the same as obedience. So we have many today that are going about willing to confess sin and do what a priest tells them to do to get rid of it, and yet not following God's word that declares for us that we are to go to the one sacrifice, once for all sacrifice, and seek that cleansing that comes from faith in him, trust that isn't just a a declaration of our mouth, but is rather the decision of the heart to walk in obedience to him, declaring him Lord, not just Savior, Master, Deliverer, King of Kings in our lives. And so we find that Israel is there doing their religious thing, making these declarations, making these confessionals, and in the midst of that, it just makes them more under God's wrath. God is just more disgusted by them. He has not taken any pleasure in this, for there is no turning of the heart to him. Their mouth says one thing, their heart is still intent that week on going out the next day and being idolatrous. Still going after the things of this world, after the things of the nations, still wanting to do that. Even while they were there on that day of sacrifice making these confessions with their mouths. We then saw last week why the, the Lord persisted in wanting to judge Israel. Even while Jeremiah wants to intercede for the people, we find the Lord saying that no one, no one can intercede for them at this point. They are at that point beyond reclamation as a nation. And this is not as individuals within a nation, but as a people of God, it is too late for them. He says, even if, if Moses or Samuel wanted to speak on their behalf, I wouldn't listen. We might say, why? Well, he keeps talking about the sins of the forefathers. Remember that last week, if you were here? The sins of the forefathers. He goes all the way back, and we looked at how gross and heinous that sin was, how arrogant it was, how pervasive it was in all of Judah, and then even into Jerusalem, and even on the holy mount of the temple, they had brought the idols into the temple and performing horrific sacrifices in there on the very holy places of God. He says, how can I not judge that, the sins of your forefathers? And that brings us to verse 11 of our chapter today, chapter 16. And it says, they, they have walked after other gods, served them, worshipped them, and forsaken me and not kept my law. That's referring to your forefathers. And so because of their sin, I 
have to judge. And yes, I gave a little season of reprieve there during the time of Josiah. But again, that was Josiah's reforms and not your reforms. He did them, but you didn't. And as soon as Josiah, the good king, like unto David, was gone, you went right back to those sins. And so he picks it up. In verse 12, it says, You have done worse than your fathers. You've done worse than bring idols into the very temple of God. And by the way, at this point, Josiah's reforms have already happened, and the temple has been repurified. All that stuff has been sent out, crushed, destroyed, burnt. All that stuff is in the valley of Gihon, that place um, um, where we get the term Hades from. It is from that place of, of never-ending fire. It is down there burning, and, and Josiah has put it away. And so the temple is reclaimed, uh, and it seems like, well, we should be in a good place, but you're doing worse than your forefathers. Well, what is worse than all that they did? You do whatever you think is right. Whatever your heart tells you or leads you to do, you justify it because it feels good or you believe it, or you think it's okay. And this was the condition of the earth before the first expression, really, of God's wrath, the flood, was that men did what was right in their own eyes. This is the most heinous level of sin recorded in God's word, is when men do what is right in their own eyes. They do whatever their heart wants to do. And we have seen this already in Jeremiah extensively. And so here it is again. You've done worse than your forefathers. And your forefathers did really nasty stuff. We rehearsed all that last week. But each one of you follows the dictates of his own evil heart. And no one listens. They don't even want to listen to God. Let alone obey him. They just want to plug their ears and go, la, 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 I can't hear you. I don't even want to listen to what God has to say. And there are many in churches today that if pastors stood up and preached the word of the Lord, that's how they would respond. We don't want to hear that anymore. I'm going to go to another place. Because we have convinced ourselves that church should be like everything else, the other gods in our world, and should be entertaining and not worshipful. So we have this declaration of the most heinous sin of Israel that demands God's action of judgment, and that is that everyone is doing what is right in their own evil hearts. Whatever they want to do, they have justified it that it can't be called evil, you can't call this sin, you can't call this wrong, um, because I want it. And on this premise, we have redefined morality by eliminating the whole concept of morality. There is no more moral standards. We talked about this last week. You have no moral ground in this nation because this is our view. Come on, this is your view. Go out there, find it in your family, find it in your workplace, find it in your neighborhood, find it in the media. You find it out there. Go to Facebook. It's all about this. You try telling something that they posted was wrong, and see how everyone responds. Not just the person who posted it, but everyone. They'll be all over the you. Why? Because you are questioning someone's beliefs and feelings. And that's truth for them. 
the most heinous sin recorded in Scripture, to do what is right in your own eyes and throwing out any other moral standard, particularly God's moral standard. And this is the condition today in our land. And so we have no moral ground at all, and so the idea that you're going to condemn rapists, you're going to condemn terrorists, on what basis? They did what was right in their own hearts. You can condemn no one for any act, no matter how heinous it is, because you are convinced that what you want to do is right, because you want to do it. Well, why doesn't that same standard work across the board? If they want to do it because they think it's right to murder people on mass scale, how can you condemn them? It was right in their heart. How can you condemn the airman who goes in and shoots his superior officer and then himself? How can you condemn him this week? That was right. Because it felt right to him. You see, you have no moral ground at all. And that is the condition of our land. We are hypocrites and heretics, really, to our own philosophy by condemning anything. Because we're unwilling to condemn ourselves for anything. Oh, we might say, oh, I might be wrong, but... And here come the excuses. This is the level of sin that reaches its worst is when moral standards are brought down to the individual conscience. Not a collective conscience, individual conscience. And those consciences are seared. They are warped. They are perverse. And so they will always excuse themselves for any and every conduct. I think it's fascinating when we look at our moral fiber of our nation, if you want to call it that. Um, it's less than a threat at this point. Um, it's uh, laughable. God has permitted historically two activities of men that to curb their sin and the moral category of their sexual behavior. Um, and those two are not permitted in this nation, and yet every other perverse sexual act is hailed in this nation. How can you condemn it? In fact, if you do so, you are given some title with phobia after it. Well, let me share with you something. I am phobic about sin. And they should be too. We should be phobic about sin. We should be afraid. Because when God looks down and says they're doing whatever is right in their own eyes, they're doing whatever the desire of their own evil heart is, each one is doing what is right to them, then we are on the cusp of God's judgment. What kind of judgment? Well, it's going to be so extensive, he says, that Israel's going to be spread all over the place. They're going to be scattered abroad. This nation, this place, this treasure house of theirs, this place of, of, of blessing, of favor, of, of abundance is going to be ripped away from them. 
And we find that really extensively described in chapter 17. I know I'm taking this a little bit out of order of the text, but I have a little bit different theme than what Jeremiah had. And so we find him going over and he says, listen, we're gonna, they're gonna lose everything. Verse 4 of chapter 17 says, You even yourself shall let go of your heritage which I gave you. All that that you claim as your own, as your right to, because you were born of the nation of Israel, you claim a right to that, it is all going to be ripped away from you. It is not your heritage. You're going to lose it all. And I love hearing people talk about their rights to declare and to believe and to do acts without, you can't judge me. Boy, we love that verse these days, don't we? Um, you don't, you can't judge me. Well, the Bible has already judged you and found you guilty, condemned, period. And it doesn't matter how you feel about it. And this was Israel's response. God says, you claim this heritage. You claim, and we saw that back in chapter 15 and 14, you claim that this is my promise to you, and therefore I have to keep you secure in that land. And that's not true because the promise is conditioned upon your obedience. You guys studied some of that this morning in the adult Sunday school class. The conditionality of God's promises. And we find here that Israel has failed. And for that they will lose their heritage. It's gone. All those rights that they were trying to claim. They were claiming those rights before God. Remember, right after they confessed that, well, we've sinned terribly, but you know that this is your land and we're your people and you got to take care of us. They were claiming their heritage without meeting any of the conditions of it. God says, I'm ripping it away from you. You're going to go to a land and you're going to serve there the rest of your days. In fact, he has said earlier in chapter 16, I'm going to pay you back double for your sin. Well, that doesn't seem fair. He's not just going to give us what we deserve. He's going to pay us double our sin. Why? Well, chapter 17 tells us why. Here we go. You want to look into the heart of men? Here it is. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond engraved on the tablet of their heart. Why? Why does it have to be such an intense, so extensive, so pervasive a judgment? Why does it have to be so much, God? Why double for the sin? And it's because of the manner in which it is in, in, captivated in your heart that you have cherished sin. You have written it with a, <laughs> I love the, a pen of iron with a diamond point on it. You have engraved it in there so deeply, etched it into your heart, this sin idea, this moral standard of doing whatever is right in my own heart. You have etched it there in the tablet of your heart, and to erase it is not a simple act of grabbing a dry erase marker or just rubbing it, the paper towel. Have you ever tried to take out something etched in rock with a diamond blade? You know what it takes? A diamond saw. 
you're going to have to go after that thing and you're going to have to just tear into it. You're going to have to take layer after layer after layer after layer down just to get rid of what's engraved before you even get down to something that you can begin, begin to work new with. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Not, not tonight, because Prodestin will be here tonight, in two weeks. Uh, next Sunday night. And so, we're going to talk about that newness. Well, how do you get to the newness? Well, you've got to take off all the stuff that's been etched in over generations that we have put deep within us, that we cherish it. We guard it with everything we have. And if we see someone else's etched in sin being attacked by a preacher, we are going to defend their etched in sin vigorously. Why? Because we know that if we let that sinner attack their etched in sin, that pretty soon it's going to come around to my etched in sin. So we defend what I see in Scripture as the extent of the greatest sin in society when everyone does whatever everyone wants. And no one is allowed to point a finger and say, that's wrong. That is sin. That is judgment. And so that is the condition of Judah. The heart is that hard and sin has been etched into it that deeply, that powerfully. He said, as soon as Josiah is gone, your children remembered one thing. They didn't remember the Lord. They didn't remember the truth that they heard. They remembered one thing. What did they remember? They remembered how you made them go out and collect the firewood for the idols that you burned their siblings on. That's what they remembered. And as soon as Josiah was gone, the children of Israel did what? They remembered the altars. They remembered the wooden images. They remembered the green trees on the high places. They went right back to the etched in sin, etched in from childhood, burned into them. The idea, you worship whoever you want, wherever you want, however you want, because there's all kinds of ways to God. Everyone finds their own path. Sound familiar? Yuck. Yeah, I'm a phobic. I'm afraid of that kind of talk because I know what it brings. And it should bring fear to you as well to hear that kind of speech in our society, that kind of attitude so prevalent and the hypocrisy of then condemning terrorists for doing something they believe Allah wants them to do just as earnestly as you believe it's okay for you to commit every act of heinous sin that you want. Just because you want different sin than they want doesn't give you a right to condemn them. This is the condition of Israel. This is the condition of a land that God says, I'm going to pay you back double because your sin is so deeply set in your hearts. You have no interest in listening to God, let alone obeying God. You have no interest in the idea that there is 
an authoritative standard that everyone is measured against, even you. We don't like that concept. We bristle against it. And when I share God's word with people that stands in opposition to their beliefs, their their tendency is to uh, unfriend you, (laughs) to say, I don't want to hear that. No one listens. And in that condition, God says, I am definitely going to rip your heritage away from you. And that is scary. We should have a phobia about that. We should be afraid of that kind of sin in our midst, in our churches, in our society, our nation, and in our families, and maybe in our own hearts. This is the condition by which God says, I will repay double for your iniquity, for your sin. But in the midst of all of this, there are two very precious promises. And they are glorious in the midst of this. And this is, I just want to remind you that the judgment of God is not an ugly thing. It's a scary thing. And yes, there's a lot of death, there's a lot of suffering, there's a lot of misery, um, but Israel brought upon themselves, even as our societies today, globally, are going to bring it on themselves, and rightly does God say that my anger for all this will be forever. This is not something he's going to get over at some point in history. Ever. He will always bring him to anger, which means that this condition and its response by God is sure no matter what society we're dealing with. Remember what God said? Kill every Canaanite, man, woman, child, even the beasts, because their wickedness is that great. And now he's saying, um, you're worse than the Canaanites. If I wanted you to do that to them, what do, I, what do you think I'm going to do to you? And if God's going to do that to Judah, to Israel, the one, the people who are carrying his name on them, what do you think he's going to do to nations today? The same thing, people. These same things will always incur God's wrath. Consistently. That's what he means by my wrath is going to last forever. This will never I'll never get over this and just say, oh, they're just going to do it. I give up. We as parents do that sometimes. We just kind of surrender to the kids, right? They will never learn to do that right. Just give up. Well, not good parents, but a lot of parents. And then we redefine good. And now we see this kid after he has gone out there and killed a cop. He's such a good kid. He just got some bad influence. Yeah, the bad influence was you, the parent, who calls good evil. I'm sorry, calls evil good. There we go. Yeah, you're the bad influence because you gave up on demanding a standard of morality because you divorced yourself from it a long time ago because you haven't picked up a Bible to read it to know what God's standard is. And so this is the condition. In the midst of that condition, God's going to, Get pay double. He's not going to forget that. He'll never forget to judge that. He's never going to get over it. He's never going to get past it. He's never going to just surrender and give up. He's going to always judge that. 
But in the midst of this, two wonderful things are promised in the middle of this passage. So bookends at both ends is why God's going to do this severe judgment and how extensive it's going to be. And we find the worst sin. Doing what is right in your own eyes. In the middle of this are two glorious things. Number one is that God will get through the etching to get to fresh rock. He will drive it. Even if he has to destroy an entire generation, start over with one man. I think he did that once. And he almost did it twice. Remember in Sunday school this morning? Moses, I'm just going to start over with you. Let me just wipe these people from the face of the earth. I'll start over with you. That was consistent with God's practice. So in the midst of all of this, we're, we're looking at it and God says, I'm going to drive you out of the land. There's going to be a, <laughs> most of you are going to die. A remnant, a little sliver of you, remember last week, a little sliver are going to survive and that sliver is going to multiply. I'm going to get down to the faithful. I'm going to get down to the people of faith. I'm going to trim you down to the sliver of people. They're going to walk in my ways. And they are going to multiply. And we have Jeremiah in verses um, 14, 15, 16, talking about the future, not just the nearer future where we have the return under Zerubbabel and and then under Nehemiah and the return to Jerusalem of that from Babylon, but really he's talking about something much bigger than that. He's talking about something that's happening in our day, in this generation, that we have seen on a scale unheard of in over 2,000 years. We are living the days of Jeremiah 16, verses 14 through 16. It says, the days are coming, and it shall be no more the Lord lives who brought the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. That great exodus of the biblical era is going to be surpassed. Zerubbabel and Nehemiah's return did not surpass it. It was kind of a taste of what's to come. But it did not surpass. It's not a completion of this. It says that the Lord, there's what people are going to say, the Lord lives who brought the children of Israel from the land of the north and from the all the lands where he had driven them for I'll bring them back in their land which I gave to them. I'm going to send out fishermen to fish for them. I'm going to send out hunters to hunt them. I'm going to get them out of every little rock, every little hole and every little rock. I'm going to bring Israelites back to this land. Never have we seen it done until these days. And I'm not talking about the 1940s when Israel became a nation. That's not a fulfillment of this prophecy or of any other prophecies that I can see. It was a precursor. It had to happen so that these other prophecies could could occur. But only in our day since then, only in the last 50 or 60 years, and really not until the fall of that big wall in the 80s, could this even come close to happening? That's right, the 1980s. How many of you have been alive in the 1980s? Raise your hand if you were alive in the 80s. Julie snuck one in there. She was born in 1989. 
All right, so if you're a little older than Julie, you lived part of the 1980s. You have lived in the entire period of this prophecy being fulfilled. For only in this age, in these last years, could every and any Israelite anywhere on the planet go to Israel if they wanted. With the collapse of the Soviet Union and the Berlin Wall coming down for the first time, and really only in the season since then, could and are Israelites coming back to the land. You go to Israel today and you go down to the Gulf in the south, most northern tropical gulf is in Israel. Um, you go down there, and r- the signs are in two languages, Hebrew and Russian. You thought I was going to say English, huh? There are no English signs, trust me. My wife and I wandered around clueless about anything we saw. My Hebrew is so bad, I had no clue, and don't even get me started on Russian. So, yet, yet, that's all I know. That's it, okay? Um, Russian. All the signs had Russian on them. Why? Because of the great migration of Jews from, huh, did this verse say the north? I think it says the north. And from every land. You live in an age where this prophetic word has and is happening. That's why there's all this conflict in that land. All those settlements you hear them building, they're building it for Jews who are coming from everywhere to Israel to live. God is faithful and keeps his promises. And you might say, well, that's like thousands of years from this time and these events. Yes, But God is faithful over thousands of years. Aren't you glad? That his word declared way back then is seen to happen now. We get to see it occur. Well, there's a second promise here that we want to talk about very quickly and spend a little bit more time on. And so God is not given up on Israel. He is going to purify her. He is going to send her out there for generations and generations to to just... Get the idolatrousness out of their system. And let me tell you, if you go to Israel today, it is out of their system. They do not want anything to do with these old forms of worship. You go to the Wailing Wall and you go to the tunnels and you see their commitment. Their their commitment is strongly to Jehovah. So, not Christ, unfortunately, by and large, but not the idols of the nations. In the midst of God's judgment on his people, there's a second wonderful event. And it's going to be exemplified for us in the book of Jeremiah a little bit later on. Look at the end of chapter 16. It says... Let's read verse 18. And first I'll repay double for their iniquity and their sin. We've talked about that. Because they have defiled my land, they have filled my inheritance with the carcasses of their detestable and abominable idols. I don't know how much stronger language God can use to express his disfavor. And then verse 19. Wonderful passage. And here 
we have hope in the midst of all the despair of etched sin. And is there anything we can do on an individual basis? O Lord, my strength and my fortress, my refuge in the day of affliction, the Gentiles shall come to you from the ends of the earth and say, Surely our fathers have inherited lies and worthlessness and unprofitable things, which will a man make gods for himself, which are not gods? Therefore, behold, I will this once cause them to know, I will cause them to know my hand and my might, and they shall know that my name is the Lord. Wow! Here's a group of people who have gone off and done their what's right in their own eyes, and God is going to come out and put the hammer on them. And in the midst of that, because of the hammer and the extensiveness of what God has done, a little crack has occurred. A door is opened. And then it is later flung open that some individuals who previously had no access to this heritage, who had no claim on any of those promises, let alone the conditions of it, because they weren't in the covenant, all of a sudden they're going to see things they've never seen. They're going to know things they've never known. They are going to be able to explore things that they could never have explored before. Wow! No wonder they break into into, um, prose here. This is wondrous. Here in the midst of while Israel is getting tramped on because of their sin of doing what they want in their own heart, it says the Gentiles are going to come to their senses. And I love how they put it. What were we? our, our parents were stupid. Essentially, that's what they said. You can't make a god out of a rock because you have to make it. You can't pour silver into a mold and then say it's in charge of anything. That's worthless. That's stupid. What were we thinking? How could we ever follow the gods of our forefathers? That was dumb. They have told us lies. Imagine that. Your parents didn't have all the answers. Your heritage in the nations. And I don't care what your heritage is. we got kind of a nice mixture here of heritages. So some of you are Europeans, some of you are Native Americans, some of you are, are Asian. And so you got, you got different heritages represented here. Um, it doesn't matter. You pick your heritage. I don't care. I don't care if it's Hispanic, if it's Native, if it's, if it's Asian, if it's Dutch, if it's German, if it's Russian. I don't care your heritage. Your forefathers were stupid. There, I said it. Their gods were stupid. Because they were just rocks and trees. They worshiped the sun. They worshiped stupid things. Even spirits and demons. How stupid is that? Who do you think made them? Who do you think they're going to answer to? Let's just confront the fact, instead of being so gung-ho about maintaining our culture, of recognizing our forefathers were stupid. That is... A wonderful step here. This is the Gentiles seeing God judge his people. This is weird. Seeing God judge Israel, they're going to go, boy, why would we listen to our forefathers? Why? Because Israel went after the gods of who? The nations. And it incurred the wrath of the true God. And when the nations looked at that and said, well, they followed after our gods and it got them in trouble. With the God. Why are we following after the gods? Why are we following after the God? 
the Lord. And they came to their senses. Turn with me in Jeremiah. You're in Jeremiah. Turn to chapter 40. Just so I can give you a quick illustration of how quickly this came to be. In Jeremiah chapter 40, um, Babylon has already destroyed Jerusalem. Um, I think we're on the second second wave of it. There's three waves. Babylon comes in three times and takes them on on just because Israel's just stupid. Um, So Jeremiah here is dealing with the captain of the guard, Nebuzaradan. Now that's not Nebuchadnezzar. This is Nebuzaradan. This is his captain. This is the guy that's in charge of the, of Jerusalem now. Um, he was the one that uh, was put to set things in order and to redistribute everything to get all the wealth back to Babylon, all the good guys to Babylon, all the smart guys and handsome guys um, back to Babylon to salvage what he could and then set up a, a sort of uh, mock government that they would uh, control. So this is an important guy. So verse 1 says, The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord after Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, had let him go from Ramah. When he had taken him bound in chains among all who were carried away captive from Jerusalem and Judah, who were carried away captive to Babylon. So he identified Jeremiah as one of the guys that's worth taking back home. But when they got to Ramah, which is just a little ways he realized, I can't take this man with me. I'm letting him go. He needs to go wherever the Lord wants him to go. Listen to his words in verse 2. And the captain of the guard took Jeremiah and said to him, The Lord, your God, has pronounced this doom on this place. Now the Lord has brought it and has done just as he said, because you people have sinned against the Lord and not obeyed his voice, therefore this thing has come upon you. And now look, I free you this day from the chains that are on your hand. If it seems good to you to come with me to Babylon, come, and I'll look after you. But if it seems good, wrong for you to come with me to Babylon, remain here. See all the lands before you, wherever it seems good and convenient for you to go, go there. This is... <laughs> the drop that presages the flood of God's grace among the Gentiles. Nebuzaradan realizes you're the prophet. Now notice, Israel didn't listen to him. Judah didn't listen to him. The people didn't listen to him. And he's Nebuzaradan going, you're the prophet. Why am I chaining you? Get the, and by the way, the way he got into chains was, had more to do with Israel than Babylon. And why are we taking you with us? I, if God wants you to hear, then you should be here. We want God to be happy. Israel didn't care about making God happy. Judah didn't care about making God happy. But the Babylonians wanted God to be happy because they came to their senses. And they were like, wait a minute. Um, they were serving every God under the sun except for the one Lord God. Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Where did this man get the name Jehovah? The precious, precious name given to Israel at the Mount Sinai. Where did he get this name? Yahweh. The Lord God. He has learned the name of the one true and living God and he will do nothing 
against that man, that, <laughs> that prophet of that God. But notice the context. The context whereby he came to understand and to accept the, the Lord was the doom that was prophesied and then fulfilled on Judah. You're the people of God. You should have known better. Our forefathers were stupid. They worshipped rocks and trees. And they danced around poles. But your forefathers walked the, the Red Sea on dry ground. Your God does stuff. Our forefathers were stupid. Your forefathers had everything and you rejected it. We're not making that mistake. I'm not going to make your life miserable, Jeremiah. You go wherever God wants you to go. I want your God to be happy because he is the Lord of all the earth. And in this one man, we find the germ of the gospel that will one day become the church full of Gentiles. And that germ isn't the only one because we know the story of Daniel. You know what happens to Nebuchadnezzar where he converts the entire Babylonian empire over to the God of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Wow! All because God paid sin double to get it eradicated from the people who carry his name. No other gods care about that. You go to India, the Hindu gods don't care what you worship. They're not going to judge you because they aren't able to do anything. They're just a rock you painted. They're stupid. They really are. They're not going to punish you because they're not blessing you either. Stupid. You're worshiping something that can't help you and can't hurt you. Israel and Judah... We're serving the God that can both help you and hurt you. And it is when God punished his people like no other gods could ever punish their people because they weren't real. They had no power. This God not only had the power to bring them out of Egypt, not only the power to give them victory over the Canaanites through weird things like just shout and the walls fall down, you know, Stand there and wait for the death to strike your enemies. Wham! From the sky. Bam! They're gone. You go out, the, you're starving one day and you got food for a whole meal for a nickel. You know, your God does things like that, but he also punishes. Because if he's the one true and living God, not only is he the God that can do something for you, he can also be the God that will do something against you. And the Babylonians recognize that and says, your God punishes you? Our gods never punish us. Because they're stupid. They're just rocks and punks of metal. What can they do for us? Your God punishes you? He prophesied ahead of time, and then it happened, and we're the instruments that he uses to do this to you, and, and he has to be the Lord. And if he's punishing you, he must be the one God, and so we're going to make sure to make him happy. Well, I don't know why you guys didn't think of this. We're going to serve him. And soon, a few years from now, 
It'll be years, but soon the great Nebuchadnezzar surrenders to the God, the Lord of lords and King of kings of the people of Judah. And today we live in this verse where we as Gentiles can look around and go, boy, our forefathers are stupid. Why would I want to replicate that culture? It didn't help them. It never hurt them. Because you can pray to that rock or that tree as much as you want. It will not do anything for you. Or it won't do anything against you. Because it's just a tree. You can do stuff to it, both good and bad, but it can't do anything for you. And when we come to our senses and say, boy, my forefathers, my, my heritage is stupid. Israel's heritage is great. Can I have some of that? And here's the wonder of our message today is that that's exactly what God offers you, some of that. You can have the wonder of being in a covenant relationship with the one true living God that acts for his people and acts against sinners. And the fact is, you will experience the activity of God one way or the other. Guaranteed. You will either receive his blessing of his of obedience to him and of serving him and him alone in your life and getting rid of the idea of all these other gods and getting rid of the idea of doing whatever you want that you define what's right and wrong, and we surrender to the one true holy God, and we recognize I have to be holy because he is holy, and he, I need to repent, turn from my etched-in sin into my heart, and give me a whole new heart. And that's, God isn't just grinding it down to new stone. He's going to rip the thing out and give you a fresh one. So I'll be called new birth, because he's going to replace your heart of stone with a heart of flesh that can actually be sensitive to God's leadership. And now I'm going to follow after him with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. And I'm going to serve him because there's nothing but favor and blessing there. And this is what this captain of the Babylonians understood. Because if I don't do that, if I don't please this God who is the God, then I must be on the other side of sharing with those others who will only experience his judgment. Because he is a God that acts. He will either bless you or he will curse you. He will either benefit you or destroy you forever. You cannot avoid the activity of God. The only question is, which activity are you going to experience? Are you going to be like the stubborn knuckleheads in Judah? It says, no, we're going to do whatever is right in my own heart. I don't want to listen to God. La, 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 la. Bam, comes the hammer of God and they're dead. Miserable, destroyed. You can do that. You have the liberty to choose. Or you can this day choose to talk more like a guy named Nebuzaradan and say, if God judges like that, he's real. 
and I want to make him happy. And that means I'm not only going to listen to the prophet of God, I'm going to treat him well. Because he's the voice of the Lord in my life. And this <laughs> Nebuzaradan, great picture of the fulfillment of that prophecy already instigated here in Jeremiah's experience. It says, if you come to Babylon with me, that'd be great, and you can live with me. I'll take care of you all your days. This is the this is the emperor's top man. You know how Jeremiah would live the rest of his days if he had followed and gone to Babylon? But the guy was ready to put out everything for the prophet of God. But the greatest thing he gave him was his liberty to follow God. You do what God needs, what God's told you to do. Because your God's real. Our gods aren't. They don't punish us. They don't bless us. We keep giving them stuff. We keep worshiping them. But nothing happens because our forefathers were stupid. Your forefathers have the truth. And they were stupid for not listening. Isn't it time to come to your senses like Nebuzaradan and say, my parents are dumb. They didn't listen to the one God who truly does and is always faithful, whether he's faithful in his wrath towards sin or faithful in his love for those who trust in him. He is faithful. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. We thank you for a powerful message and we are frightened today when we look at the etchings of sin in the hearts of our nation, our society, and globally really as well. And Lord, we see it sometimes in ourselves. And Lord, give us a true phobia. That we might recognize that there is a living God who will be faithful and will judge who will always, forever, get angry over that kind of sin and will be moved to action. And so, Lord, we pray that we might be found of a different ilk, that we might want to follow after you, to turn from hardened hearts, and we ask for those fleshy hearts that can only come by trusting your Son, Jesus Christ, and his sacrifice, that he completed the law for us, that we might receive the righteousness that is not our own, that we could never achieve ourselves, by which we can be pleasing in your sight. Lord, you've given this period of time a one-shot deal. It's lasted a while, but Lord, it is really just one period of time that we can know you, that your might and your power can work on our behalf, who are not your people, but yet can be your people. And so, Lord, today, help us to recognize that you are the only one worth following. And that is why you demand full surrender. 
and will never accept a confession without a changed heart. Lord, help us to overcome the stupidity of our forefathers and the foolishness of a world gone morally amok. To think that there is no one that any of us must answer to. Lord, deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.